everyone and welcome to this latest episode of our Brexit and Beyond podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. I'm Arnon Menon and I'm delighted that my guest today is Ailsa Henderson, Professor of Political Science at the University of Edinburgh, author of numerous books, amongst which her most recent, which was co-written with Richard Wynne-Jones and which I recommend to you most strongly, is called Englishness. And we'll get on to Englishness later on. Firstly, hi Ailsa. Hello. Uh, we'll get on to Englishness in a bit. But I want to start inherent in your work is this notion that you need to grasp what the political culture of a nation is before we could understand political outcomes. And a a baby question to kick us off is, what is political culture? That's that's a fantastic question. So the way I've always used it is that it fundamentally it's, it's interested in subjective perceptions. Right. So the subjective perceptions about politics, but it's a bit more than that. So it's the it's the relationship both perceived and actual between citizens and the state and the relationship both perceived and actual among citizens. So it includes what is true, but also what is perceived to be mm-hmm. true. And when we say it's, it and it's not just whether people have trust and efficacy in in government or in institutions of the state, but also it includes that element of relations among citizens. So who do you include in your definition of political community, the political communities that that you live in? So that's what I, that's how I use it. But the way it's different from outcomes is most often just reduced to people's subjective perceptions of politics. But in the way you've just described it, it's, it's, it's quite related then to notions such as identity in some ways then. What are the boundaries of the communities that you, how do you understand the boundaries of the communities that you live in? And that of course has become immensely topical in our country at the moment. You were writing about all these things long before they became topical. And what I mean, way back in 2014, in the book Sex, Lies and the Ballot Box, one of the fascinating findings you came up with is that if you control for social class, the the Scots are no more left wing than others in the UK. But you get the sense that the Scots feel they are. Exactly, exactly. And that and that is in, in one very neat example, the difference between political culture on the one hand and just looking at people's political attitudes on the other. So in terms of what's relevant in Scotland, we know that if we're looking at core values, then the Scots are not particularly all that different from the English. But if you look at perceptions, one of the one of the dominant features of Scottish political culture is one of distinctiveness. And it's not just we are different, but we are different in very specific ways. And so it might not be true, but it's still a salient feature of political culture. Where does the, where do these perceptions come from? Are they political creations? They are. I mean, on the on the issue. Of, just you know your point about Europe we we devised a, a euroscepticism battery and we were looking at attitudes in Scotland and in England and in fact the di- the difference between Scotland and England is not often core values but it is different conclusions about the consequences of those or the the automatic kind of what you with the decisions you then make as a result of those perceptions so the Scots are not less euroskeptic than the English but they do come to very different conclusions about what should happen. And so one one thing I've always been careful to, to distinguish is they might not be different on attitudes, but they do have very different interpretations of how the state should operate. And so the same things, the same values, the same attitudes lead you in sometimes opposite directions in Scotland and and in England. As I as I understand it, you grew up the, the child of Scottish parents in Canada. And one of the 
fascinating things you've written is a co-authored book that compares uh, the national question in Quebec and Scotland. In what way is Quebec similar to or different from Scotland when it comes to this national question? They're often compared because they are movements for greater self-determination pursued by political parties that position themselves on the center-left um, and are seeking a democratic route to independence. So there, so those are the main similarities. In many ways, though, Quebec probably has more in common with Wales. If you're looking at the, the sense of kind of cultural distance from the rest of the state, and particularly on the issue of, of language, um, that's where the kind of the similarities mm. between Quebec and Scotland break down. But you see there's there's useful similarities both in terms of the the framing of the, the the markers of nationhood but one thing that is really important is that and this has had an impact on on national debate in Quebec in particular is that there was never any question that Scotland was a nation within the UK whereas that recognition was never there for Scotland uh, for for Quebec rather and so demonstrating or or reaffirming the existence of Quebec as a nation has kind of been a dominant feature of the of constitutional politics in Quebec. So because that was recognized in Scotland, it, it meant that political parties didn't need to continually assert we are a nation. This is why we're a nation. These are the features that we have that mark us out as a nation. And it meant you could kind of park all of that and then move on and talk about other things. But because that was contested in Scotland, the parts of Quebecois literature was always talking and the Bloc Québécois as well was always saying you know we every document people say they're kind of obsessed with the past and it's not they're obsessed with the past just for fun it's it's because there was never a recognition that, that Quebec was a a nation they tried to get recognized as a, as a as a distinct society which was seen as kind of one step below a nation but it, it means that nationalist documents are constantly going through the markers this is why we're a nation this is why we think we're a nation this is what it means to be a nation this is what we want um, and that's a key distinction between um, between Scotland and Quebec right this is this is the bit I've really been looking forward to actually I think it is an absolutely <laughs> brilliant book so congratulations first and foremost and oh, thank you I've got loads and loads and loads of questions and actually what I want to start with the election of 2015 and the referendum of 2016, because your analysis of those two is utterly fascinating, because one of your arguments is having weaponized English identity in 2015, David Cameron kind of forgot all the lessons he should have learned about that in the referendum in 2016. That is to say, they didn't make enough effort in a way to speak to England, not least in the debates. And do you think that really mattered in, in 2016? The the, the failure to talk to England per se on the part of the Remain campaign. I, I think it absolutely did. They they ran the 2015 campaign on the basis of a very particular understanding of what the English electorate wanted, and then parked all of those all of that knowledge and understanding in terms of the 2016 referendum, and then campaigned as if they had an electorate that they didn't actually have. They campaigned as if there was almost universal buy-in for a vision of Britain that is not often articulated by the Conservative Party, but more articulated by Gordon Brown, this understanding of Britishness as, you know, Britishness as the open, outward-looking, multicultural foil to a kind of less open, less multicultural England. I'm, I'm not saying 
saying either of those are correct interpretations, but this is just the, the this is just the understanding. Mm. And I, th I think they, I think they campaigned assuming that their electorate was looked in one way in 2015, and then it's they they had suddenly magicked up its opposite uh, in 2016. And I, I think that was a considerable part of what happened in that referendum. I don't suppose you'd care to speculate as to why, whether it was just sort of Cameron hubris or whether it. Oh, I think uh, it was a spectacularly poorly run referendum. And one thing we do know also is that they were they were assuming that having won the referendum in 2014, that they should basically campaign in in much the same way, not not really acknowledging that in fact the Better Together 2014 campaign would not be a case study in campaign success. I would say they they had an incredible poll lead at the at the start, and they did not have that incredible poll lead at the end. So I would not I would not turn to the lessons of 2014 as something to to emulate, but it it did seem to be working that way. Also, we know that there was there was deep reluctance within the Remain campaign to be too aggressive with like to have blue on blue attacks, to have conservative Remain supporters or those who were engaged in the campaign, you know, attacking other conservative members or actors who were on the other side. And so I think what we see there is another example of a party more concerned about partisan ends or partisan goals than what happens in the country. And in that, I suppose it's quite similar to the 2015 election campaign mm. because you had a, a party that prioritized partisan outcomes over, over the union. I mean, that's the thing about the 2015 yeah. campaign. To, to campaign on the basis that the electorate that matters is an English electorate, and then you can portray the Scots. And it, it was images of the SNP, but we know that the campaign was saying we, we use the SNP as a proxy for Scots because we know that the English are resentful of the Scots. So to campaign with an incredibly divisive approach to territorial relations within the state in 2015, because it will suit your party, is in a way quite similar to what happened in 2016 and, and a certain squeamishness about asserting your case because it might it might damage the reputation damage the of, of your party. Now, one of the paradoxes in the book is, I mean, you talk about this notion of, of the English being devo-anxious, and yet I think it's true to say that the data you present shows that this anxiety didn't sort of get triggered by devolution per se. It took quite mm. a while to manifest itself. Why is that? So between 1999 and 2003, there was a ton of public money spent looking for an English backlash to devolution and none was found. And so having found none, I think the public funders stopped, you know, pouring money into surveys that would help us to understand attitudes in England. And to the point where we, when we were trying to find funding for surveys in 2007, 2008, we were repeatedly told, no, there's nothing going on in England. So you don't, you don't get that money. You don't need it. You can go survey Scotland and Wales, but there's no point looking at England. And it wasn't until 2011 that we found money to go looking. And by then there clearly was something that had happened. We believe that the data from 2003 are correct. So we know that something happened between 2003 and 2011. My own view is that there was a meaningful difference between having a Labour administration in London and a Labour-led administration in Holyrood. So in a way, it didn't really matter if the Labour-led administration in Holyrood was making a bunch of stuff free. It didn't seem to annoy anyone in Westminster. It didn't annoy the English journalists. But when you have an, an SNP government as of 2007 doing much the same thing, or in some cases, extending things that were free um, or extending the list of things that were free, then it does trigger a reaction from political elites in England. And that, I think, is part of what's happening. I, th I think it's partly the arrival of a nationalist government in Edinburgh. It's also related to the things being free. <laughs>
free. You know, you have English taxpayers saying, hang on a minute, we send you all this money and you get more public funding than we do. And, and, and yet you don't have to pay for as much stuff because you get it all free. How on earth is that fair? My, my co-author takes a slightly different view and believes that having Gordon Brown as prime minister also was relevant. But mm. we, know, we know two things are going on underneath Devo anxiety, that it is dissatisfaction or dis- disquiet with the constitutional status quo. And, in, and it has a particular target and that target is Scotland. And it manifests itself as a perception that the Scots have more resources than they should and the Scots have more influence than they should. And in a way, both of those things, making things free as a result of a of an SNP administration, and oh my goodness, they've also got the prime minister. I mean, that taps into both of those things, undue resources and undue influence. So we think that's what explains the change between 2003 and 2011. Most partly, it's the language in which the SNP do things that had had part of the impact there, was it? I mean, the tone of an SNP government is different to the tone of a Labour government when it comes to Scotland. Is that I the... think it's, it is as much a reaction to a Labour government in England, a Scottish Labour government in England to a Scottish SNP government in England. I think it's as much how we react to it as it is to, to what right. that government actually says. I'm not sure people are, are reading the public comms messaging of the, of the SNP. Right, okay, fair enough. Of any, of any Scottish government in England, although, you know, as a political scientist, one would hope, but I, sus- I suspect not. The book is about Englishness, but of course, a lot of it is about Britishness as well. And one of the fascinating things you argue is that Britishness means different things in different parts of the UK. So Britishness in England yeah. is very different to Britishness in the rest of the UK. Can you just explain how? So many of the... In, ter- in terms of what on the, what on the ground that means, many of the attitudes that attach to English national identity in England attach to British national identity in Scotland and in Wales. So it's it's always been the case that British identity has been interpreted through a local lens. That's quite common in any large kind of plurinational state. Everyone interprets their their national identity through their own their own local experience. But what's different here is that the identity now attaches to not just different but opposite understandings of how the state should be structured and how the state should engage in the wider world. And so one thing we did kind of partly in the book and then partly in an article afterwards was was reinvestigate um, the data on voting in the 2016 referendum. And, And what we find is that those who were British in England tended to vote remain, but those who were British identifiers in Scotland and Wales voted leave. So Britishness means not just different, but opposite understandings of of what should happen in the state, depending on where in Britain you live. Is that partly because Britishness means not Englishness or not Scottishness for some people? So that, yeah, no, that's a good one. Because yes, in Scotland and in Wales, that is what it has tended to mean, right? But but one of the things that's quite interesting about Englishness is that, and and as someone from Ontario, this is, um, intuitively, this makes so much sense to me, because this is also how how one would conceive of, of their identity in Ontario as it relates to Canada. But Englishness is different from Scottishness and Welshness because it does not retain that kind of we are not Britishness. So Scottishness and Welshness is defined to a certain extent by the fact that it is not Britishness, but that is not true of Englishness. And actually, in, you know, in the book, we talk to people about, um, or we report the data where we, we talk to people about what makes them proudest to be English and what makes them proudest to be 
British and we do it a number of different ways. We have kind of closed ended questions where we give possible responses to people and they pick from our list. But also we just ask people in their own words to talk about what makes them proudest to, to be English and to be British. And for the most part, people mention exactly the same things, yeah. regardless of the territorial frame in England, where you don't get that in Scotland and in Wales. People distinguish Scottishness and Welshness, the institutions, what it means, what it stands for in a way that doesn't happen in England. England's relationship with Britishness is very different from that in Scotland and Wales. And it has much more in common with the kind of national unionism you saw in the in the 19th century in Scotland and Wales than it does with contemporary Scottish and Welsh national identity. So, and I know this is a huge question, probably can't answer it in, in detail, but what is the difference between those in England who prioritise Englishness and those in England who prioritise Britishness? What, what are the big differences in outlook and view between those two groups? Mm-hmm. And obviously one is attitudes towards the European Union. Yeah, so this is kind of the two unions argument that we flesh out in the book, but we first mentioned in a, in a report with IPPR. It's basically saying that English national identity relates to how English people interpret the two unions in which England finds itself or found itself. So the domestic union in the United Kingdom and the external union of the EU. So English national identity relates to Euroscepticism, as you've mentioned, but it also relates to Devo anxiety. So this constitutional or this disquiet with the constitutional status quo, in part, as I mentioned, you know, the the point about having Scotland in their sights because of resources and influence, but also deep frustration about governance arrangements for England itself. And that just, we just don't see that from those who prioritize a British identity. And the other thing, when we were trying to figure out, well, why, you know, it's one thing to describe and kind of punishing detail how these attitudes all relate to each other, but we were trying to figure out also, well, why, why are we Seeing that, what kind of what what's going on underneath that um, to explain that? And and one thing that routinely popped out was a a low sense of efficacy. And I think that in part is to you know the sense that you can make a difference or that institutions are responsive to you. It is you know efficacy is particularly low in England, and it is connected to we think the the absence of any kind of legislature in which the English can express themselves as a distinct political community. And some might say, well, yeah, but you can do that in Westminster, particularly as a result of English votes for English laws. And English votes for English laws is is deeply popular in the English electorate, but it doesn't satisfy the desire to have an institution that allows you to express yourself as as a political community. So this lack of voice is a large part of what is driving the relationship between English national identity, Devo anxiety, and Euroscepticism, because it's a sense of not having a voice domestically, but also, you know, as we know, it connects also to Euroscepticism, the sense Mm. that you didn't have influence because you were ruled by outsiders um, in terms of the European Union as well. I I suppose the obvious follow-up then is what would satisfy that need Mm. for a voice? Because one of the the fascinating things is politicians often respond to this English issue by saying, okay, let's have devolution in England. And uh, if I understand the polling in the book correctly, there's absolutely no appetite or very little appetite for that. It seems to me as well that the English are quite keen on sort of changing the devolution settlement but is there a way of satisfying the English whilst keeping this devolution settlement as it is when you say the English are keen to to change the devolution settlement do you mean the English electorate is keen to change devolution to Scotland and Wales or or you mean English want change for themselves uh well I'll, I'll pose it as a question to you either way I mean let's the big question is how do you satisfy the English yeah well that's how do you I mean the, voice? The, the book provides called comfort there so you have this real you have this real problem in order to provide the English with with an 
institution of their own, you end up with, with an arrangement where, where one unit that represents like 85% of the, of the state is a constituent unit within some sort of federation or quasi-federation. And that level of asymmetry is completely unparalleled. Um, and it would be seen as deeply destabilizing for the state. So folks who want change, and this is, a, this is something that's most often put forward by Scottish unionists hoping to solve the problem of the state, is that you carve up England into regions that are, you know, roughly the same in population and scope as Scotland. And then you have a much more symmetrical arrangement, right? So it is the institutionally more palatable solution. It is the, as you've noted, the democratically least palatable solution. When, when forced to choose between arrangements that treat England as England or arrangements that carve it up, every single time people pick a solution that treats England as England. So the solution that saves the state is the one that people don't want. And the one mm. that people want is deeply destabilizing for the state. And that, and so we're just going in circles around and around and around. And in a way, I mean, I've kind of talked about federalism being this kind of zombie policy because it just, every time you point out that people just don't want it, someone else pops up a year later and says, I know, let's try, let's try carving England up into regions and see how that works. Apparently you can see what's going on because we know that there is a strong sense of English national identity in England. And we also know that the English have very strong local identities and a strong desire for subsidiarity. And so you can see what people are doing. They're saying, oh, well, this kills two birds with one stone. We've got something that kind of pitches in at a slightly different territorial scale, mm. not quite local, not quite English, but surely that satisfies both situations, a desire for subsidiarity and the English English national identity point. But the problem is that it, it doesn't yeah. solve both problems. It solves neither. And that's, that's a large part of why polling for it is so poor. And we've, I mean, we've tried changing the question around because people keep saying, yeah, but people like regional devolution. You know, we've retained a time series, but we've played around with the questioning. We've, that was one feature of the Future of England survey. We always adapted questions to contemporary reality so that we were polling on the kinds of things that people were proposing and talk about. And in no formulation can we find strong support for regional devolution in England. Now, I don't know if you saw the article in the conversation by Lindsay Richards and Oliver Heath about England. Just to explain to us, it's, it's a piece that argues that actually the differences between North and South of England are bigger than those between England and Scotland. And that's very different to your findings, I think, yes. in your book. I think in your book, you basically say, London aside, England is pretty much the same. Yes, that's exactly what we say. And we think the London effect is largely composition effect explained by the population that migrates to or lives in England, uh, London. It's, it's not a kind of contextual effect of living in the capital city. So, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And that's also something that has been a, a standard feature of what we've found. And we've compared our identity data to the census identity data to see if there was anything, if there was any one single region that was kind of throwing our results off. They're fairly consistent. Do you think the Heath Richards findings might be something to do with timing, that these differences have become more acute post-pandemic, Andy Burnham, North versus South, things like that? It could be. I mean, we were in the, we were in the fields in... In November, we normally go out in this in the sum in the summer or the spring kind of late, early summer, late spring. And we shifted to the autumn um, to do autumn field work. So we're now kind of in the field October-ish um, each year. So we we were looking at the 2020 data to see if we picked up anything. We pick up a slight uptick in support for regional solutions, but nothing but nothing major and, and no real 
regional variation in in terms of what's going on going on there. It is possible that the pandemic has budged things. It would be remarkable if it hasn't. The pandemic has been awful. In addition to that, it has taught us a, a lot about how people engage with and understand devolution. And devolution has been, on the one hand, much more visible, but it has also revealed the kind of cracks in the system and, and also made clear, not for the first time, the extent to which the UK government obfuscates about when it acts for England and when it acts, acts, for, mm. the, acts for the UK. So devolution has been much more much more visible. And I would also expect not just at changing um, attitudes and evaluations, but I would hope that it has also changed and increased knowledge and understanding of what's going on. Now, finally, just to end, you're, you're one of those academics who gets out and about. I mean, you say in the book that you've presented your research to politicians, to civil servants, you believe in, in communicating research outside the academy. And you had a bit of a salutary experience, I believe, back in 2019 with the Future of England survey, when you asked a question about whether leavers or remain has felt violent protests would be worth paying the price. And there was a bit of a backlash to this. Can you just talk us through this and the lessons you learned from that episode? Uh, yeah, it was really bruising. I mean, as an academic, you'll know, as an academic, you develop a really thick skin about people saying your ideas are a total nonsense. And yeah. you have to have the kind of courage of your convictions to think, no, no, I've either A, I've gone about this the right way or, or you know, no, I know I'm right. I can't put my finger on it, but I know I'm right, right? So you develop, you develop a really thick skin. Um, but I've found that whole experience really bruising because maybe because I'm used to academics you know telling me I don't know what I'm talking about where whereas you, you don't expect it from journalists so I mean one one thing we had started asking about was whether people felt that Brexit was worth it you know in all the discussion about Brexit there it was quite common to find people saying well this is going to be really dangerous to the union so we devised a question saying right there might be some changes to the union as a result of a Brexit uh, as a result of Brexit, what do you think about these possible situations? Would they be worth it or would it, it's not worth it? And the two initial examples we had were unraveling the peace process in Northern Ireland and a second referendum in which Scots vote yes. And what we found is that leavers, the English electorate was on balance, perfectly happy for these things to happen as a consequence of Brexit. But if you actually distinguish between leavers and remainers, then leavers were overwhelmingly likely to say, yeah, either of those things are an acceptable thing to have happen if it means we get Brexit. But the problem with the survey question is that it frames these risks only in terms of leaving the EU. It doesn't suggest that there are any risks of, of ignoring the referendum result and staying in, in the EU. And it also doesn't acknowledge that there is a situation, you know, you couldn't ask that question properly in Scotland because there's loads of people who would say, well, that's got nothing to do with Brexit. I want independence anyway. So we adapted the question in 2019 and we we had questions that were these are risks of Brexit do you think that this is uh, something you want anyway it's not something that I, that I want and it's not worth it and it's not something I want but it is it, it's it's a, a risk worth taking and then we also framed them in the context of of staying in the European Union and we expanded the list of risks so it was it, you know there were certain economic harms we talked about violent protests we talked about violence directed 
directed towards violence directed towards MPs. I mean, we expanded the battery because we were looking at contemporary politics and we were listening to the, I had been listening to a debate in the House of Commons one day and was interested to hear that people, you know, MPs were saying, if we don't do this, there will be violence in the streets. If we don't do this, there will be violence directed mm. towards members of the House of Commons. And I, I remember messaging Richard and saying, I think we have to adapt the battery to include a wider range of risks. And the results were interesting for us because they confirmed that it's not just leavers who saw significant constitutional change as a, as a risk of worth having in order to get Brexit, but Remainers, the numbers lag a little bit, the re Brexit results, but Remainers were equally of the view that certain radical constitutional change was a risk worth taking if it meant that they got their own way on Brexit. So for us, there was a certain amount of symmetry there in, in the data, but the reaction to it ignored all of that and just focused on the fact that we had dared to ask a question about whether people felt that political violence or, or violent protests in which people get injured or violence directed towards MPs was an ap appropriate question to, to ask. And some people said, we're basically saying you should never ask questions if you're likely to get answers that are unpalatable. Whereas our, our view was that, you know, we have to understand the extent of polarization. It's not just enough to say, how strongly a Remainer are you? How strongly a Lever are yeah. you? That gets at a certain level of polarization. But to understand whether it would change the way that people interact with the state, the way they would express themselves, the way they would engage or not, what the trade-offs are for them in terms of the state as we know it. I mean, we felt that that was, and still feel that that was an appropriate approach to take in terms of understanding how this significant constitutional change in terms of Brexit is affecting the way we interact yeah. with domestic politics. Has the experience made you more wary of engaging with non-academic audiences or not? No. The one thing that I found deeply unfair was a journalist with about a million Twitter followers rubbishing our rubbishing our research without without ever having actually asked to see the tables or the question wording. I, I we got a lot of noise in our in our various <laughs> social media feeds as a result of that. You know, I study contemporary politics. I I study um, and I study it through surveys and I, and I think asking about what is going on and then reporting. You know, this is what we think is happening here. I, th I think taking part in that wider discussion is an important part of being an academic. And I, I mean, my, I, it, I think it flows from the, the, the questions I ask and the, and the, and the research methods I use as well. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't stop, but I would hate to have been earlier on in my career. And I yeah. did, I mean, I did listen, we did listen very seriously to when some people write in and they say, well, yeah, as a survey expert, I think you could have phrased this a little bit differently. We responded to those criticisms entirely differently than, than the ones who were just saying you shouldn't survey on things that might prove unpalatable that we don't necessarily want to we don't necessarily want to hear so no it doesn't it hasn't changed anything it has made me it has made me approach release day for data slightly different I used to be quite excited whereas now I'm always like oh gosh how's this gonna go down but <laughs> um but no I would I would hate to have been a younger academic you know who had not had decades of experiences of reviewers saying certain things to you that kind of toughens you up and thickens your skin yeah. it would have been a far more far more bruising thing if I was much younger than I am at the moment. well I mean I I personally look forward to hearing much much more from you if it hasn't been clear from this podcast already that's my fault but the book is well well worth buying and reading it's absolutely fascinating on an issue that I think is central to our politics and will be for many years to come Elsa thank you so so much for taking the time to talk to me I thought it was absolutely brilliant thanks so much